Thanks for tuning in to the ABC Music Talk podcast, the show for anyone interested in the music industry. Continuing on with the coping with COVID theme from my last interview, my guest this episode will give another side to the music industry, one that always straddles the commercial and the human side of the music piece. In other words, the musicians that create it. But first, time for me to remind you all to go roto your videos. Rota is for artists, managers, labels, or anyone in the music industry who needs to create video content for promotion or monetization. Rota makes it fast, easy, and inexpensive to do all of that in one place. Head to www.abcmusic.co and click the Rota logo on the homepage to access a 10% off discount for the service. Welcome to the show, Naomi Pohl, currently Deputy General Secretary at the Musicians' Union. Welcome. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> no, well, thanks for coming to the Halley. Shout out to the Halley again for, for letting us uh, d- do this recording in their studio. Um, and listeners may have picked up on the uh, the slight emphasis there on the word currently, as I'm catching Naomi uh, as she's mid-campaign to be General Secretary of the MU, uh, which was like a good place that we should perhaps start with this. So maybe we can do it in this order. Perhaps just tell the listeners what the Musicians' Union is, and we might refer to it as the MU. It's typically, I think, how people you know shorten it down um and then also what a general secretary position might be and how on earth did you get to uh, uh this sort of campaign stage of your life to become general secretary so give us your backstory is what i'm saying there so start with what is the mu uh, and then we'll go on Great. Um, Thanks. Yes. So the Musicians Union is the trade union for professional musicians living and working in the UK. Um, So we've got 32,000 members across all areas of the music industry. Um, So working in live performance, in orchestras, uh, in the session world, um, also gigging musicians, uh, songwriters, composers, I mean, across the whole spectrum. Um, And we're a trade union. So essentially, we negotiate rates of pay, we negotiate contracts, we provide advice to our members. Um, But also, uh, more than that, there's a sort of collectivism to being in a trade union. So we represent musicians and we're run by musicians. So we've got this uh, committee structure. Um, So we've got a board which is made up of musicians. um, And also we've got committees in various areas of the country that look at local issues. And also committees that look at different areas of the business. Um, So again, the Live Performance Committee, the Music Writers Committee. um, And... Uh, yeah, it's a really interesting place to work. I've always worked for trade unions, which is quite a niche. Um, and I've worked my way up, I suppose. I, I used to work for the Writers Guild of Great Britain, which is a um, trade union for scriptwriters and screenwriters in TV and in theatre. Um, and uh, started negotiating rates of pay for them. And then I came to the Musicians Union about 12 years ago um, and I've worked my way up through the organisation and we're at a point now where coming out of the pandemic and following Brexit we've got a lot of challenges as an organisation um, our members have had the roughest time in history. Yeah, well and, and that's kind of what we're, uh, we're going to come to a little bit with the Covid thing as well so and so so what is a general secretary then at the MU? So the general secretary is essentially the chief executive role um so you're elected by the members you uh then have a five-year term and you run the organization um but because you're elected by members you generally make promises during your election campaign um and then that that's the work that you carry out that's what you focus on for the next five-year period so for musicians 
the person who's elected to this post is pretty crucial because the musicians union is pretty crucial in terms of getting musicians a, a good deal influencing decision makers we do a lot of lobbying and campaigning on behalf of musicians um so it is a crucial role but one of my fears is that this will just pass musicians by because we right. we have a postal ballot system so oh. you know you have to just hope that musicians will open that uh, that envelope and use their vote Right. Okay. Uh, so not digitised then. We have, you haven't got got to that. Okay. All right. Well, there's the scope. Maybe that's one of your manifesto uh, pitching. Now I shouldn't be advising <laughs> you on this. It's a terrible idea. Um, okay. Very good. And so, but how did you, so you gave us a little bit of your background there? But like, so you know, coming out of university, like, what did you? Is, is this what you thought you'd do with your life? Um. Well, no, I guess. But <laughs> I, uh, I studied theatre and drama and English oh, at university. Okay. Um, so I was really passionate about theatre and I wanted to work in the arts. Um, and I, my first job in, in London, I worked for the British Museum, actually. Um, ah, I, do you know, I only went there for the first time the other weekend. It's amazing. It's, it's fantastic. gorgeous. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and I used to sit in the um, Great Hall, you know, the kind of yeah, central yeah, yeah. hall there with the reading room. And... Uh, it, we, I used to sit there and give advice and, you know, it, like the information desk. But also, um, it snowed once. <laughs> you can imagine the uh, great glass ceiling there yeah. covered in snow. It was really eerie and strange. Oh, wow. It was quite an, a cool place to work as my first uh, job in London. Definitely. But also, I worked um, out of hours. I worked for a th- little tiny pub theatre in Islington. Right. And that's how I made the connection with uh, starting work at the Writers Guild. And I guess I've just... I've been really passionate about representing creative people and trying to get them a good deal, and that's mm. how I've ended up staying in the trade union movement. Yeah. So, and, and sorry, I forget if you said already. How, how long have you been at the Musicians Union? About twelve years. Twelve yeah. years. <laughs> yeah, that's quite. That's a lifetime uh, in jobs in the music industry, isn't it? So, well done for uh, your perseverance and, and your service. I think is the uh, the best way of putting it. Thanks. <laughs> no worries. Uh, very good. Okay, so let's now turn our attention to the subject of this episode, which is uh, coping with COVID. Uh, and we have a bunch of things to cover. So, uh, as I always do with my interviews, um, I have a little chat with uh, the interviewee prior to, and um, we settled on this as a uh, as an idea. In fact, uh, you know, this was uh, one of the reasons why I'm doing this sort of series of coping with COVID through the conversation that you and I had. And I wanted to ask, as I've been curious about this, and the sort of the, the backstory to this is, I, at the time, I was working with a record company that had somebody based out in Shanghai and so as the COVID pandemic started to hit of course China was the first one to sort of globally you know demonstrate that there might be a problem here Um, but uh, but it wasn't until March 2020 that we had the first government lockdowns as far as the musicians unions concerned when did you sort of first when was this first an issue something you felt like you had to deal with or was it like pre the lockdown post lockdown like when, when did it sort of take roost? Well, it feels like it hit within a week. I right. mean, we, so um, my colleagues and I were talking about the fact that we were actually in Glasgow for a meeting um, really shortly before that uh, first lockdown. Um, and we all travelled back and, you know, people were beginning at that point to talk about um, having heard of the coronavirus. Right. Um, and it was beginning to be in the press. But I don't think we had any idea that it was going to hit the music industry in the way that it did. And then suddenly it feels like within a week in March, suddenly everything was locked down all of our members was work was cancelled overnight yeah of course suddenly the the kind of nature of 
of our work had completely changed. Well, and and that's I think what we're we're going to now get onto. So so it really was a kind of as it as it took you know took hold of, of the country's uh, infrastructure. I suppose uh, that's when that's when it really impacted your your members and, and therefore the work that you were doing. Right? Yeah, okay. absolutely. I, I guess that makes sense. Um, yeah, I wasn't. I was just never sure like how much the preparatory work was ever done anywhere. Quite frankly, because I don't think any of us knew what what it was going to be. Right? No, um, not yeah, at all. No, no, very very good. Um, so what were the sort of what were the sort of first requests from members that you started to get what what were the first things that really started to impact well um firstly it was kind of we i mean very quickly musicians were falling into financial hardship so a lot of our members are freelance a lot of them earn kind of 20 grand a year maybe 30,000 a year they don't really have savings they don't tend to have pension funds so Mm. there's not much of a safety net there for a lot of our freelance members so very quickly we were seeing financial hardship and musicians getting in touch with us saying all my work's been cancelled um you know they were asking for advice on their contracts to see if they were due any cancellation fees we were getting advice on force majeure we were getting advice on frustrated contracts so essentially something's happened which has meant that this contract has kind of fallen away your obligations have fallen away so we were giving that advice out to members but we also um opened a hardship fund really quickly ah okay um, so I, I was going to cover financial assistance because uh, you had mentioned the hardship fund. So maybe let's just skip straight to that. So was it, was there something unique about how that started? I think you mentioned crowdfunding. Was that right? Yeah. Well, we um, actually we uh, put a million pounds in from the union's financial reserves. Um, and, you know, again, we made that decision pretty quickly because it was it was clear that our members were going to need urgent help and we, we needed to do that. So we moved a million pounds into an account. We had no idea at that point how many applications we were going to get. So it's very difficult to establish, like, what level of grant should we be offering because we don't know how many applications we might get, how quickly the money might go. Um, but we also started crowdfunding and it was brilliant that members were organizing online gigs um in order to raise money for the hardship fund oh, wow. um so and we also had some donations from different organizations um for example ppl uh they made a couple of major donations which really helped um and every donation you think about it in terms of how many more musicians are we actually going to reach with this um mm-hmm. and it ran for the whole of the pandemic and we even had some funds left over so we're still offering covid hardship grants if music are suffering financial hardship as a direct result of the pandemic Mm -hmm. and I think there was something else you mentioned that on the sort of just on the financial theme um, that you did was it subscription holidays for the fees that's right yeah Yeah, so we also thought um, you know there's a potential that we could lose a lot of members here because our members pay an annual subscription most of them pay by monthly direct debit and obviously if you're not earning um, you're going to start cussing all your direct debits out if you can so anything non-essential might go Um, So we thought, well, we want to keep members in membership, but also we want to keep providing services and benefits to them and advice. We were trying to get um, advice out every day by email on uh, as the restrictions Mm -hmm. changed. Um, So we wanted members to keep having access to that. So we did offer a subscriptions holiday. Um, It started off as being six months, but I think in the end, 
musicians were able to get a nine-month subscription right. holiday okay. in total. Oh, very good. You, I guess because it's one of those weird ones, isn't it, where, I mean, that's the, the structure of your organisation. That's just how it works. And it's not an unusual one, the sort of, you know, club memberships or whatever. Um, but, of course, you know, for them to then be forced out because they can't afford the subscription just at the time when they actually do really need for the first time maybe the sort of help that, that you guys produce yeah um yeah difficult one to manage that but so well done for uh, for getting on that quickly um and so you've mentioned the the, the performance getting getting pulled because of course that was like for many industries the the big thing that really really impacted because literally the doors were shut i mean i you know i have a uh, mentioned on this podcast many times i have an interest in a, in a little bar and it was that march 20 uh, March 20th 2020 uh, when the doors shut and and that was uh, you know a real moment in a brand new fledgling businesses moment and that's the business side but of course for musicians you know that that would have been that sort of thing because we had some live music in the bar you know that wasn't a venue that was available anymore as was any others yeah so um were there, were there cancellation fees built into contracts I mean what what, what was was there any protection not uh, not a lot i've got to be honest because right. um unfortunately it was it was this event which essentially meant that the contracts couldn't go ahead the events couldn't go ahead so um we, i mean we took each case individually so we looked at the terms of the contract and mm. if there was a possibility of arguing for a cancellation fee or trying to negotiate something then we would do that um but the kind of broad principle was this is a force majeure situation. It's almost like act of God level. Right. It's, you know, the, the government are imposing a lockdown. Uh -huh. So government restrictions mean the event can't go ahead. And that means that the contract terms kind of fall away to a certain extent. Wow. Uh, again, it depends on the individual kind of contract sure, and how it's sure, worded. Sure. But Cause it I, was a bleak situation. Yeah, because I mean, there, there was a real trend for promoters in particular to... Uh, they weren't necessarily refunding ticket prices. They were sort of you know keeping them back for future events D did that have any benefit at all to the musicians themselves that would you know be the eventual recipient of a piece of that ticket price well potentially because um the idea being that i guess the work would be postponed so i mean yeah. if you could have your uh, event postponed rather than cancelled at least there was a chance of that event going ahead in the future and obviously some events moved online so there mm. was potential to still get a fee as well yeah, um, right. so but I mean in the early days of the pandemic it, nobody was doing online events so I mean it took a while for that to get up and running most of our members were doing a bit of online teaching but again even that took a while right. to to get up so to start with it was just a case of absolutely no work for anybody i think the recording studios reopened first right, um, right. and we we helped to develop some guidance for health and safety around the studios and social distancing um but yeah it was a really gradual process for things to reopen and and i'm sure it was a it was a bit of a process because and uh, <clears throat> excuse me for the uh, for the slight slur on the, the the government in the UK but they ma they made a few changes didn't they as it sort of went along one oh, minute yeah. one 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 minute was okay next minute it wasn't next minute it was next minute it wasn't and it was very confusing I mean for a small little bar it's my sort of lens that I can sort of see it through you know we were constantly having to change what we were doing you know in terms of the you know the PPE that we had to use and the process that had getting people into the bar I mean what what was it like sort of trying to navigate that you know from from your point of view well I mean it was the main thing that we were doing actually was kind of at certainly at my level we were having a lot of conversations with the industry 
So we were having to rapidly respond and get advice and guidance out on a pretty much daily basis to members, telling them what was okay and what wasn't. And, um, you know, we were on calls with all these different uh, operators in live music and live events. So we were on calls with, like, the wedding industry. Right. We were talking about similar issues. And obviously at weddings you have oh musicians. God. There was There's a connection there. But we developed a kind of... A, relationship with the wedding industry for the first time as an organisation because all of these uh, industries that rely on live Mm. were affected in similar ways Um, but yeah I mean we were just pumping out the advice and guidance to members on a really regular basis and I hope that was something that made it it was a really valuable service I think yeah I guess at least they've kind of got a you know a support group like you know support to lean on as as that changes because uh, otherwise it, i'm sure it'd be incredibly isolating yeah and we had to do it at a devolved level as well because obviously right. scotland and wales and northern ireland had different restrictions at different times oh so, so okay so actually uh, so the the mu covers which territories yeah the whole of the uk whole of the um, uk right okay. yeah so we've got uh Actually, Wales and South West England are kind of together in one. We've got one office for that area. Right. Um, so they were having to deal with providing advice on the restrictions in England and the restrictions in wow. Wales. And then our Scottish office also look after Northern Ireland. So, again, they had two lots of uh, regulations to try and navigate. And if I understand correctly, that's still ongoing because Scotland and Wales are still looking at this differently? That's right. And I, I'm really concerned about what happens next. Cause <laughs> I think the fact is that... Every engager or employer or venue has got health and safety responsibilities towards Mm. anyone that they engage, right? So they're going to be considering, do we ask people to wear masks? Do we ask people to test? But they're going to have to make up their own mind on that. Mm. So what I'm worried about is that we're going to see a total inconsistency. And I'm worried about anything that might prevent a musician from being able to go and do their job. And also, of course, if... Lateral flow tests are no longer free, but you're required to test for work. Are you going to be paying for that out of your own pocket? It should be the employer or the engager paying. Um, But it depends on who you're dealing with. Maybe the BBC will do that. But will a little venue do that? It's, It's... you know, it's going to continue to be a mixed bag, I think. So tough, isn't it? Really, really tough. And and so, I mean, actually, testing's quite a... That was something that just dominated people's lives for so long. I mean, and still does in certain parts of the world, as, as we're, I guess, talking about. So, I mean, that was, I guess, probably one of the other things about if even, even, in, the, even in the periods where musicians could be in a venue or in a recording studio or whatever... I guess they had to turn up before they were originally booked for and, and things like that. I mean, does that have a, a onward sort of downward impact on their, their general lives? And Yeah. Um, so if you look at the West End, for example, um, we had to put in place a variation agreement. So we, we negotiate terms and conditions for all the West End musicians. Right. But they were having to come in, and they still are, having to come in an hour and a half before work, unpaid, to get a test, wait for the test result before they can go and sit in the pit and actually do their jobs. And obviously we want to protect their their health and safety. We wanted to make sure that they were able to go to work Mm. and not contract COVID. Um, Not only for health reasons, but also because if they contract COVID, suddenly they're off work potentially. Are they getting sick pay or not? You know... It, it, yeah, it's been an absolute nightmare. I, I think our, our members have been incredibly patient with it yeah. and incredibly kind of compliant and understanding. Um, but, you know, I'm sure that a lot of our members are also now looking forward to all of those restrictions falling away and trying to get back to work as normal. Unless, 
Unless you're a clinically vulnerable musician, in mm. which case you're probably really worried about what the future holds. So we're not out of the woods yet. For sure. And, and of course, it's not even just about the individual. It's about their perhaps their, you know, their home situation. Maybe they're living with somebody who's more vulnerable. And so there's always that. It's, it's such a difficult one to, to navigate, to know what to do here. Cause, and trying to make rules for one doesn't always fit the other. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very, very tricky. So let's talk about some of the other things. So I, I, I know that you've been uh, looking at the bullying and harassment and there's some campaigns that you've been working on. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and its relation to the situation with COVID? Yeah, so um, when the Me Too movement kind of kicked off in a big way uh, following the Harvey Weinstein case, right. um, we started to question and people were actually getting in touch with us from the press to say, is there going to be a Me Too movement in the music industry? What might that look like? Are we going to start seeing people being called out for bad behaviour? Mm-hmm. Now, we... Uh, sort of early on decided that what we do is put out um, a call to kind of invite uh, members to come forward with any experiences that they'd had. So we held open meetings around the UK, which were quite well attended. I went to one in London um, and there were maybe 25 musicians who came along to tell their stories. Um, And then we opened an email account, which is safespace at themu.org. And we opened it up to anyone working in the music industry to essentially say, share your experiences with us, um, particularly looking at sexual harassment. Um, and we've had hundreds of reports since then. Um, and it's, you know, quite quickly we realised that there is a serious problem in the music industry. We do need to do something about it. It's, it's a problem with the culture of the music industry. Mm-hmm. And it's not just one type of workplace, you know, it's not just studios it's not just um orchestral settings it's it's music teaching a lot of students got in touch to say they'd had really negative experiences at college or conservatoire i know it's been absolutely awful um but i feel like we're beginning to get a bit of traction now um from the government and from the music industry actually acknowledging that there's an issue and looking at ways that we could take preventative action right so i mean and so the um the acknowledgement of it is is definitely definitely the first step and and i've covered um international women's day twice on the podcast since i've started doing it and uh, you know the fact that there's a dialogue the fact that we're talking about you know gender inequality is and i know that's only sort of one one aspect of say that can come into you know, harassment or bullying. Um, what, what what are the sort of initiatives that you think you know will come out of this? Well, like, have you got any favourites that you think will be really impactful? Well, um, wh- one of the things that's being discussed at the moment is the potential of a regulator for the industry. Right, okay. So it's something they're looking to introduce potentially for TV and film and theatre first, but it might be rolled out to music, and it could be an independent. Uh, place for people to go and make reports so the safe space service we offer we listen we believe we're here to campaign obviously what we've been doing is trying to gather a a sense of what issues there are and where they occur and we've been using that in the in our talks with government um, and with the industry but I think having an independent place that you could go to get uh, an investigation would be particularly important for freelancers because obviously music industry is heavily populated with freelancers. That's one of the, the reasons that we have this issue because they don't tend to be covered by policies and procedures that employees are. Um, and so if you've got multiple freelancers making a complaint about another freelancer... If there's no kind of employer involved, where does that complaint go and who who will investigate it so I think that could be really important I think having somewhere independent that people could go would be a great comfort but I also think 
if they've got powers to put sanctions in place, it could also act as a deterrent, which is really, um, really crucial as well. so, yeah, I think the issues that we have in the music industry are late night working, freelance work environments, informal working relationships, imba- imbalance of power. And some of these issues are seen elsewhere in the creative industries. So the kind of government roundtables I've been attending have been attended by representatives of fashion as well. Um, and as I say, TV, film, theatre. So, uh, yeah, it's, I think that's a really interesting development. And I think there's going to be an industry code of practice However, a code of practice is not going to change things on its own. You know, we've got mm. to adopt a zero a zero tolerance approach, really, across yeah. the whole of the industry. Very good. And so you just mentioned the government there. Do, do you? And is that a large part of your the work that you do as well? Like trying to being the interface? Because let's face it, you know, if you're a, a jobbing musician just doing weddings or whatever it might be, it's, you're never going to like speak to a government official necessarily about key policy change or whatever. So is that is that a large part of what you do day to day it is yeah so right. how's that how does it how do you find that are, po- are politicians fun to work with well we get a lot of support it's interesting i mean there's certainly been recent secretary of state for dcms that we d- really had very little contact with right. um so trying to get the contact is step one right and then you want to build a relationship with somebody. I mean, we've got lots of really supportive Labour MPs, mm-hmm. but we're building a network of more supportive Conservative MPs as well. And it tends to be per issue. You know, they're not going right. to blanket support everything that we do, but it might be that they're really passionate about music streaming or they're really passionate about um, the bullying and harassment issue, trying to address that. Right. So you want to build those connections. So I've, I actually find it fascinating. It's something I really love doing as part of my job and I think we're getting better at influencing the government I mean during the pandemic what's been interesting is that we've spent so much more time on on zoom just face to face with government officials talking to the secretary of state and ministers more often so have they been a bit more available then because of the the dynamic of that meeting arrangement yeah they have and i think they've taken a more active interest because the industry's been in such a crisis yeah right um yeah we've definitely had more availability which has been really good and incidentally you were talking about the bullying and harassment issue just saying Mm -hmm. you know I, i think i wondered Will this go on hold during the pandemic? Because, um, you know, people are working from home more. They're online more. They're not necessarily meeting face to face or going out in the evenings after work or whatever. But it's not been the case. You know, we've continued to have reports throughout. Wow. Um, And I think, yeah, that's kind of shocking in itself. Has it changed at all in terms of type and form of, of, of bullying and harassment? I mean, you do obviously see online um, bullying and harassment and sometimes you see like inappropriate text messages, right, that okay, sort of thing. Okay, yeah, um, and in those course. cases, you've actually got some evidence because one, <laughs> one of the problems we have is, you know, lack of evidence yeah. when something's just happens well, in person and it's not witnessed it's grim it's really grim yeah well i'm sure i'm sure uh, as you were saying about it was uh, i forget exactly the the form of it i think you you did a uh, some sort of open uh, forum originally with, was it with 25 people that's or something that's right yeah i mean that um, that must have been harrowing to listen to some of the stories yeah and it was and uh, you know the minute um i got into that meeting i mean we'd had rape crisis had trained this our staff beforehand right. and we actually had somebody there from rape crisis as well because right, right. it's really important to make sure that survivors are getting appropriate support yeah but yeah we saw young musicians coming in with box of tissue boxes of tissues and you think 
wow, what are we getting ourselves into here? Like, this is quite a serious issue, yeah. of course. Um, and you do hear some really dreadful uh, stories. I mean, one of the first stories that I heard from someone at a meeting like that was she basically had someone completely take over her life. It was kind of wow. coercive control. Uh, they'd taken a control of all of her finances. Um, and she d- ended up leaving the industry because she felt like she had no other option. Oh, what a shame. What Terrible, yeah. And, and and what 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 are you able to do at this point? Are you, is it just a sort of, uh, you know, uh, sympathetic ear initially to then try and turn that into some sort of action? I mean, do you signpost to legal advice and and organisations that help? I mean, is that sort of the form it takes? Yeah. So initially, we signpost to support services. So if you know if if there is a sexual assault um, case, for example, then it's important that they get appropriate support from an organisation like Rape Crisis. Um, and there's various different organisations that that we uh, kind of flag up. Um, but the next thing we do is I would talk to the person. Um, usually, I'm involved in dealing with the cases, and then. It's, it has to be survivor-led, so it's a case of what is it they want to achieve and what's within the realms of possibility. So I've come to understand the term kaleidoscopic justice. It's not... Oh, okay. No, no, no. Explain <laughs> that. That sounds great because I might yeah. steal that. Well, yeah. I, so I heard this from um, on a course that I was on, actually. And it, basically, it's very, it's very rare that we get proper legal justice in these cases. Um, these are cases where, on the whole... The survivor hasn't gone to the police um, and they want to report to us. It might be a historic issue or whatever. Um, But we try to get some form of justice that means something to the survivor. So sometimes it's just that they want the person to be called out or we might approach their organisation and say, this happened on your watch. It mustn't happen again. It's about trying to stop that from happening to anybody else. And we do provide some legal advice um, where that's appropriate as well. Um, so there are cases where we've managed to get some form of justice. Okay, um, but, but yeah, it's not, you know, it's not always proper legal justice, I would wow. say. Wow. I mean, it's a hell of a responsibility to take on, I would have said, to, to be sort of at the forefront of that for people. But, but I guess that's the that's the point, right, of musicians' union to, in, in one area, at least. Yeah, well, we I suppose we always dealt with things like bullying, discrimination yeah. and harassment in the workplace as part of our roles anyway. But this was kind of honing in on something and, and providing support to people beyond our membership as yeah. well. Because I think we just felt that was the right thing to do. Yeah, very good. Um, so we're in the UK um, and... Well, in England, we're out of our restrictions. <laughs> yep. I mean, what, what has changed that you think will never come back? Oh, that's interesting. Um, God, uh, well, I, I mean, I hope, <laughs> I'd love to say nothing. <laughs> but I do think that people feel a bit differently about travelling and, you know, I, I, so I think what the what I would say is maybe this is a, a more positive way to flip it. Okay. I think what's come that will never now go is all the online communication. So, you know, Zoom meetings I think are here to stay. Online events probably. Mm-hmm. Um I think people are gonna be quite uncomfortable about losing social distancing in environments like a theatre pit where you're actually really up close with mm-hmm. other uh musicians um i don't know i'll be interested to see how that goes because i think social distancing has been incorporated so orchestras are still operating with like one and a half meter distance right right, right, um 
So, uh, yeah, I'd be interested to see if that does drop away. Mm. Um, I, maybe musicians won't want to be crammed into workplaces with no ventilation like they used to be. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you sort of, I, mean, I don't know whether you've noticed or not, but I, you know, I've been travelling on the tube a little bit and it does feel like people have almost just forgotten and they've just gone back you know sort of return to type so to speak yeah but yeah so as i think i think it will be interesting but i mean i i agree i think the uh the usefulness of a a zoom meeting has definitely a zoom other video conferencing uh <laughs> technologies are available yeah goodness I get, get in trouble for that i'm sure um so, but and and it's it's created such great efficiency around i don't, I don't know there was something that i i noticed the other day i went out for I think one of my very first days in London doing face-to-face meetings but of course my day was still sort of you know uh, pocketed with these zoom meetings that and you were expected to be somewhere where you could do that yeah and of course if you're out like running between meetings you're not necessarily anywhere that you can do that it, it's hard it's that is a real challenge yeah. so because I've been able to do because like, you've been on the campaign trail I mean has that like been Oh, absolutely. I mean, so the campaign trail would usually involve going around the country and talking to groups of musicians. Yeah. Unfortunately, I also got COVID oh. during the election process. So, so I, I'm not laughing at that. It's just the sort of oh, the, the lives that we've been leading. I yeah. know. So that stopped me. So, you know, I was really conscious that potentially other candidates were out seeing musicians and I wasn't I was at home so but thankfully we've got social media um and I did have zoom meetings with with musicians um it's not quite it sounds like it sounds like you weren't too sick to be able to do that um but you obviously contagious so yeah I had one day where I literally was just out cold and couldn't pick I could hear the phone ringing but there was nothing I could do about it I was just gone but um thankfully it didn't last too long I mean you know, obviously, it feels like this latest variant isn't quite so um, quite so strong. Strong, yeah. thank yeah. thank goodness, yeah. Yeah, very good. Um, yeah, wow. Okay, um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, life at the MU as an organisation. I mean, one of the things that so uh, uh, you may not know this, but the interview that I did before was with a, an independent record label uh, with the, the founder, uh, co-founder Chris Goss, um, and we talked a little bit about some of the challenges that they've had around things like use of the office. Um, you know, it's quite an investment for a, a, a small business, a small to medium business. Um, so, I mean, do, what, how have you sort of coped at the MU with, where is the office in London? Well, we've just moved... Um, to London Bridge. Oh, okay. Yeah. Very good. So, funnily enough, just before the pandemic hit, um, we decided at Christmas, just before Christmas, we sat down and we said, right, we're going to sell the building. So we've got, oh. we had this massive building um, near kind of Kennington Oval area. And just I just didn't feel it was doing the members any good. Like this massive building sitting there. Um, members come for meetings, but really there was a lot of staff just knocking around a half empty building it felt and it was quite expensive to run so we decided that we were going to downsize and we were going to find a rented premises so we moved to London Bridge which is much smaller and then it turns out actually that was absolutely the right thing to to do at that point in time because now we're moving to hybrid working so explain your hybrid working what does that how does that work so we've got members of staff most of us i think are going to be at home working two or three days a week come into the office yeah once or twice a week or whatever um so we yeah it's just like a mixed a mixed Uh, scenario so (laughs) 
a friend of mine uh, works for a particular publication in the music industry. Um, he, I, I, was, I was catching up with him and he said, yes, well, you know, we're all twats. And I was like, yeah, I don't think you can say that. And he said, Tuesday, Wednesdays and Thursdays in uh, terms of their working. And I was like, oh, that's actually really clever. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that's right, that was good. Absolutely. Yeah, good. <laughs> I haven't heard that one. So is it something similar to that? Yes, it so is. So you're, you're, you're saying that you're all twats, which is excellent. And you heard it here first. <laughs> I'm kidding, listeners. I'm kidding, of course. Um, and did you have uh, new people start? Did you sort of have to go through that iteration of new people starting the business? Yeah, we did. So what trying to like? train people up. Well, what's been funny is the laptops and mobile phones flying around the country because right. it's been like you get somebody starting and you need them to get up and running. So you need to provide them with the kit. Normally, you, you, they'd be coming into the office on day one, sitting down at a desk and they'd have their computer. Mm-hmm. Well, so we've been trying to provide people with laptops and mobile phones. So you have somebody who's leaving the organisation who's based in Scotland and you've got someone joining the organisation based in London. Trying to coordinate getting the uh, laptop and mobile phone from <laughs> A to B has been a bit of a headache. I mean, this kind of practical stuff, like... Trying to get couriers to do, yeah, I mean, it's, it's and, a and, and somebody's got to organise it, which they didn't have to organise before. Yeah, me. Yeah, oh, right. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah. I see. General dog's body. Is that what we're going with? <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I'm sure I'd have colleagues who say, hang on a minute, I'm pretty sure I did that. That's no, all right. Everybody pitches in uh, when, when it's like that. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, the musicians that you represent, I mean, how, because uh, one of the things that, that came up with the interview with Chris uh, was that they also tried to put together, wasn't exactly, well, actually, did he call it a hardship fund? I forget now. It's something like that. Um, that they, as a, a small label, you know, offered to their, the, the artist that was signed to the label um, because it's a dance label and a lot of them are DJs. So actually a lot of their money really comes from their DJ work. So they lost that. So then they were almost solely reliant on their recording income. And um, so he tried to do that. And he said, actually, not too many of them needed it because some of them just kind of got up and did an Amazon delivery job. I mean, did you have you found? I mean, that's I mean, all, all power to people that that have the the ability to just to sort of get up and fight for the next day. Um, did you find that you had a lot of members just going, "Yep, gonna have to do it this way instead"? Yeah, we did. We really yeah. did. Um, and again. Uh, a lot of musicians didn't apply to our hardship fund because they wanted it to be there for other people who they felt needed it more. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, we did. A lot of our members ended up going and doing delivery driver jobs. So yeah, you've got, again, musicians in the West End who are kind of at the top of their game in, in regular work uh, going off and getting a driving job and not performing. And yeah. the problem is as well that musicians need to perform and need to practice in order to keep the the standard of playing up. Um, so it's been really challenging physically and psychologically yeah, for musicians having to take that time out. Yeah, actually, I mean, so I, I'm a failed uh, musician myself. I just, I've said that a few times in this podcast. Uh, <laughs> formerly uh, a, a classically trained trumpet player. Now, oh, right. it's, it's quite a loud instrument. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you can get practice mutes and all the rest of it. But I guess, you know, like with people that you know, have had challenges of working from home in perhaps a shared, you know, house. Therefore, they're in amongst a whole load of other people and therefore confined to their bedrooms. Musicians, presumably, many are in the same sort of spot, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, how, how, how's that been? I mean, have you been have you been able to offer them any sort of respite at all? Well, I mean, in terms of practising at home? Yeah, practising, oh. yeah, I guess, like, because, I mean, you mentioned earlier that uh, recording studios were one of the first things to sort of open up again. Yeah. Did, did, was there any sort of rallying cry for rehearsal space? To, to allow people to come in for free and things like that or did that not really happen? Not really. I mean, shame. it's no, unfortunately, it was a case of you'd only actually go into a physical workplace if you 
if there was paid work there and it, right. it, it, you know there were only really if a studio was open they only wanted people there who were essential um so you know it's difficult to get visitors in let alone um I yeah because then that impacts on like cleaning the the place and that's the thing like that. oh, goodness. it's tricky it, it's it really is tricky isn't it it is and practicing at home you know i remember when i was uh in one of my early jobs at the mu that we used to regularly deal with members getting in touch to say that their neighbors had complained about them practicing at home right yeah this was i guess where i was going with the whole yeah. analogy yeah um really uh, challenging yeah uh, it's difficult yeah. to know how to deal with that. Um, I mean, what do you do, right? I mean, yeah. th- th- there's a point, isn't there, where you just, I don't know. <laughs> it's a really challenging <laughs> a, career, but really musicians is. are incredibly resilient. They so, really are. And yeah. actually, actually, on on that that point of them being resilient, I mean, what what was what was the MU's reaction to? I, I forget exactly the wording of the government, but the advice was maybe you should retrain. Oh, I know. That, I mean, the advert I mean, where what? Fatima is a was it Fatima is a ballet dancer, but now she's going to work in IT or something yeah. like that. I mean, outrageous. Um, <laughs> I mean, there was a complete outcry from our members. Um, just, stupid things to go, just like to say go. I mean, that was up there. I know, absolutely. What, what was it? What was the official line? Well, we uh, we had, were running a campaign during the pandemic called Invest in Musicians. So right. the case that we were making to government is you need to invest in these people because they are incredibly resilient and resourceful, and they do uh, they're amazingly skilled and well trained, mm. and they invest a huge amount in their own careers. And everything that they do benefits the UK. So not just in terms of the economy, but also just in terms of like well, health and well-being. Um, you know, music is incredibly important. It's a great British brand. Let's not let our industry hemorrhage all this talent. But it was like talking to a brick wall, honestly. Wow. I mean, after we got the self-employed income support scheme, we we you know we knew there were gaps in it, and we knew a lot of our members weren't qualifying for support, and we kept banging the drum if you'll excuse the pun making that case to Mm. rishi sunak and we never really got anywhere to be honest yeah and and one of the other initiatives i think i heard about and correct me if i'm wrong was the idea that the the, a government subsidy on the seats so you could sell i think like half the tickets and then the government would pick up the tab on the rest is that that was something we wanted as well yeah did that ever come to fruition no Oh no, because we were saying <laughs> what what the government needs to understand is that venues can't open under social distancing because they can't afford to only yeah. sell a third of their seats. So we were saying if the government could subsidise places to open, then that would be, you know, that would be helpful. But instead, we got the Cultural Recovery Fund, which was valuable, you know. It's great that the government were going to invest, but it basically went to venues and buildings. And unfortunately, a lot of those places remained closed. So it wasn't actually providing work for our members. Um, Really difficult, really challenging. Yeah, really, really is. Um, Okay, so still on the campaign trail as of yet. So I don't know, listeners, whether this will get turned live and we'll find out whether uh, Naomi's fate is uh, sealed or not. But um, I'm curious, what are you you kind of running on, so to speak? What are are your your main things that you're, you're telling members that you will do should you get that position well uh so my yeah my pitch is that we need to build back pay and agreements post pandemic so obviously as we've been talking about a lot of those things that we've agreed with employers and engagers to get the sector up and running we need to move back now to getting musicians pay up a lot of our musicians have really struggled Mm -hmm. and suffered during the pandemic they've been incredibly patient they need to get a decent pay rise now um, to reflect the cost of living going up. Um, a lot of our members are not very well paid. So we need to address that. 
We need to address the impact of Brexit. We need to move music education back up the agenda post-pandemic as well. And also arts funding, because I think when I first started at the union, we used to talk about arts funding all the time in um, lobbying events. And I feel like it's slipped down and it's been partly because of the pandemic. During the pandemic, we've been talking about short-term support, hardship funds. We need to now look at long-term stability for the whole of the arts sector. Um, So they're my kind of big pitches, I suppose. But in terms of myself as a candidate... Because I'm Deputy General Secretary, I've got a lot of experience. I, I understand what makes the organisation tick. I understand how we run the organisation. We've got a turnover of £7 million a year. Oh, we, wow. Yeah, we distribute a £1 million in, in royalties to musicians each year. And I've been actively involved in that. Uh, royalties? So. Where do the royalties come from? So we collect synchronisation uh, royalties do for you? performing musicians. Oh, yeah. right. Okay. So if... Uh, TV program uses a um, a track, a commercial uh-huh. track. Yeah. Um, it's uh, covered under our synchronisation blanket license. So the BBC pay a blanket license to us, for example, which right, we distribute okay. to musicians. Is it just the B boards? Like, does it and ITV? Um, yeah, and Sky. Um, but also, we we have individual synchronisation licenses that we negotiate with um, feature film companies and uh, advertising agencies as well. Ah, very good. And and so is that uh, is that your members coming to you and saying help with this? Uh, somebody's interested in my music. Can you help with it, or, is, or how does it work? No, we tend to get contacted by music supervisors. Oh. Um, so they'll say, I want to use this piece of music. And then we would quote according to the number of musicians on the track. Ah. Um, again, it's quite a niche area that people might not realise. No, I had no idea. Do. I had no idea. That's great. So there is a sort of commercial element to it then, I guess, in, in a very direct sense. Yeah, we but we collect um, royalties for... Uh, non-members as well as members um which is you know it's it's a way to make contact with people who aren't members of of the organization um but yeah just like ppl and prs for music we collect we collect royalties and we distribute them and we have to uh, you know we have to get them out to people regardless of their membership status um but yeah it's an interesting area yeah and i used to be involved in negotiating the sync licenses um which was quite interesting because yeah you'd be quoting for a pop track one minute and then another minute you'd be getting a a request for an orchestral track or an excerpt of a film score that might have over a hundred musicians on it so then obviously that's more expensive to clear um but we always just try and get get enough money to be able to distribute something meaningful to the musicians yeah yeah, very good. Well, um, we are coming up on time on the interview. It's amazing how fast that's gone gone by. So, uh, first of all, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about Thanks this. I, I think a lot of people are going to find this very, very interesting. Um, good luck as well. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I might still be Deputy General Secretary when this goes well, out. We'll, we'll see. You know, that's uh, that's okay, though, isn't that's it? That's okay. Uh, yeah, it's no. a democratic process. That's so, it, exactly, you know. exactly, exactly. But I wish you all the best. You certainly sound like you uh, you know exactly how to help all the musicians that benefit currently. Um, so uh, you'd be a great leader for them. Thank you. Um, okay, so thank you. Uh, to my listeners, thank you for listening. As ever, I welcome all feedback, comments and suggestions for future shows. My Twitter and Instagram handles are at Alex Branson or head to the website where you'll find a contacts page. Also, a shout out to the incredible audio assassins who provided the music branding for the show. And if you like the show, please leave a five star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. <laughs>